Hi, everyone. My guest today is Luke Burgess. Luke is an entrepreneur. He's a college professor at the Bush School of Business. He was a Wall Street guy. And, you know, it's sort of fascinating when you meet someone like this who's had many startups and he thought, okay, you know, I'll, I'll make some money. I'll get a level of success. And he wasn't getting that feeling, that transcendence. And this made him do a deeper look into just some of the things that are hardwired in our competitive nature and how we can actually be more mindful of this and not only in our workplace, but even with like our neighbors, which has led him to his latest book called Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. A lot of us experience this. We think, oh, if I just have this, if I just go there, if I just win that, if I just earn this, um, that'll give me that feeling of transcendence. And, you know, Luke just really gets in into the weeds on, you know, humanity and our human ecology and how do we manage this to work in our favor, even if we are pursuing. He does a beautiful job also of sort of putting a modern day breakdown on the teachings of famed French historian and philosopher René Girard. And the thing I really appreciate is that people like Luke, who live in the world, they're of the world, he understands technology, um, is out there teaching young entrepreneurs and reminding this, them all along so that in pursuits that, yeah, sure, we can accomplish and be successful, but that also if we're not sort of looking at some of these other things, we're going to be missing the real meat, the real importance of you know what life is about. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Hello, Ma. Push the earth away, Gabby. Hey, Gabby, how are you? Good. Good to meet you. Great to meet you, too. Where are you? I am um, in Washington, D.C., unfortunately. Landlocked Washington. <laughs> yeah, how about you? Are you in California? I'm in on Kauai. Oh, nice. You're in Hawaii now. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for pushing it 30 minutes. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no worries at all. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm grateful, and I'm, I'm glad something in the book resonated, and I uh, can't wait to talk about it. Well, you know, it's interesting getting ready to, you know, talk to different people. It's, um, you know, when people have a lot of different points of entry, like for you, you could talk about business and creativity yeah. and, and um, sort of these other dimensions about work. But then it's now you're, you know, this talking about wanting, which is a sort of crosses the boards for everybody across the board. It, you, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here. I have a commitment to kind of saying, how do I want to start? but then allowing what's supposed to happen, happen, not getting too structured. But um, I have to admit, it's, it's sort of, for me, it's fascinating because I think after I did all of my work, homework, I, it kept coming back to me and also in your presentation that it feels like it's always connecting back to being just a human being. Yeah. And, you, you know, this idea of this transcendence or connecting not only with yourself, and the allowance of things coming through you, but sort of this higher connection. So I, it kind of, I, I think I want to start there, which is what is it in you that through your teaching and your own professional path, because you know, you have both um, keeps you really coming back and trying to speak in different languages to getting people back into this humanity part. Mm. What is that seems to be something that, you're drilling down on from, you know, many different angles. 
The word transcendence, you really hit on it. That's really important. Uh, I think at the heart of every entrepreneur, but at the heart of every human being is really that desire for transcendence. And, you know, I was trying to find it in the startup world. I was trying to find it in so many different places. I think that's kind of why any entrepreneur starts a company. They want to manifest something that they think should exist in the world that just doesn't exist, you know, and, uh, and, you know, they create it. And that's one of the most awesome powers that a human being has. Uh, and that's certainly what was driving me in my younger years. Uh, and then I got disillusioned, you know, because, you know, ultimately I thought that the companies that I was starting was going to kind of take me all the way there, like all the way to where I wanted to be. And I never quite got there and I couldn't figure out why I was getting so frustrated. When you say where you want to be, is it in feeling, is it, is it a combination of feeling and external, some kind of external life that's representation of there? You know, when you said it didn't take you there, was it some internal experience? And I think, and, and also I want you maybe, because I feel like entrepreneur has shifted. I feel like what entrepreneur was also became popularized and then what it's shift, it also, some people maybe got in it to be like, oh, that's a way. Because I believe in a way before things are, are sort of canned as sexy or something, it was a drive that people had to your point. I don't mm-hmm. know. So maybe first we could answer when you say, take me there, in what way for you personally? Well, I didn't know at the time. Uh, (laughs) looking, (laughs) looking back on it, I realized that where I wanted to go was to, to be in relationships that I wasn't in. So I have this core belief that a human being is just a fundamentally relational creature. And I lacked that understanding in my early startup days, because you can start a company and not have any meaningful relationships at all. In fact, you can start a highly successful company, you can start a billion dollar company and have relatively superficial relationships with your investors, your business partner, and your customers. So there was something on a relational level that I was craving. And every relationship is a form of transcendence. It's a way of getting out of yourself in order to enter into the experience of of the other person. And I was a relatively lonely entrepreneur. And um, I mean, I happen to know a lot of entrepreneurs because I'm still in that world. I was a relatively lonely entrepreneur and I couldn't put my finger on why. I think I always thought that, you know, the next successful company that I created would give me some sense of fulfillment, but I was neglecting those relationships in my life. So that's, that's really what I mean about get me there. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, my faith was a part of that, but also just friendships and you know, romantic relationships. I couldn't stay in one because uh, I was working 80, 90 hours a week at the time. Well, I was going to say the other side of being an entrepreneur is you have a seven day week and you, you know, you, you, you sort of do what you have to do all the time to make, to make whatever, you know, quest you're on, keep going. I think people love this idea of what being an entrepreneur is, but I think there's people who, you know, they don't understand. It doesn't matter if it's Sunday, if you're working on something, especially in early days. So I find it interesting though, because you would end up having probably better relationships with the people you're working with when you're an entrepreneur than maybe even in your personal life, because those are the people you're having all the time with. As long as they're not just transactional, transactional relationships, right? As long as it's not just always about the work. And 
you know, I was in a relatively, a couple of relatively toxic relationships early on in my startup days. I left Wall Street. I left the 90 hour weeks thinking that my life as an entrepreneur was going to be so much better. And I'd have this lifestyle balance and I'd be able to work out when I wanted to work out. And I had these dreams about the way that I would fashion this perfect life. And then once I got into it, it just wasn't like that because there's a real danger to being your own boss. And that's, there's no end to the work. You can just, there's always something else to do. You can wake up at two o'clock in the morning and, oh, you know, let me get a jump start on tomorrow. So there's that. And, you know, I was, I had business partners that were rivals to me in work. So if my partner worked until 9 p.m., then I didn't want to stop working at 8.30. And you get in this never ending game. Uh, well, it, it ends in just absolute misery and you're paying a misery tax because at the end of the day, you're so miserable. You want to go have, you know, five glasses of wine to make yourself feel better. And then it's just a vicious cycle from there. Yeah. And I think it is interesting where you, how, how do we set it up that we're on the same team, but yet we're weirdly competing to, with one another. And I even, you could say that in friendships, in romantic relationships, right? Like I've talked a lot with friends about I've been in a relationship for 25 years and there have been times where my husband is kicking ass and thriving and I am a professional person, um, but maybe we had small children and then I'm making a very conscious effort to celebrate, you know, his kind of upcycle. Cause by the way, it's up and down for all of us throughout sure. all times, you know, it's just the way the cycle is. But it is funny how we can be in all kinds of teams and yet within it, that tension from that inner competition that's so unproductive. Yeah, people don't often think of being in a loving romantic relationship or marriage as having the, the ability or the possibility of becoming rivals to your own partner. And it happens all of the time. You can kind of get in this I, I happen to be engaged to be married to a wonderful, successful entrepreneur herself. Thank you. Thank you so mm -hmm. much. And she's just crushing it right now in a little food startup. Um, yeah. And, you know, she's having all kinds of success and, you know, good news. And it's just funny how easily, uh, you know, like even competition between us can creep in, in terms of like how much we're working, sharing good news. It's like when she shares good news with me, do I have to like one up her? Do I feel the need to share good news with her? Or can I just like, let it be her day and, and her night. Right. So we're, it's always this kind of push and pull. And, and it's a bad place when you get in what I call a teeter totter relationship where like one person can't be up unless the other person's down or vice versa. And I've seen so many friends get into problems with that because they don't realize that if they really went deep enough, they would realize that they're kind of a rival to their own love. <laughs> yeah. Well, and how about this idea? So at least with this, it's like kind of measurable. It's external on some level, like, okay, she's getting X, you know, uh, calls or opening X businesses and it's external. How about I have seen situations where someone's happiness, their ability to find things that make them happy and pursue that is in some weird way of a, an affront to their partner who hasn't, isn't able at that time to do the same thing. So it's like, oh, great. You like doing these activities and you enjoy your job. And I'm over here and I, I haven't navigated that for myself. So your happiness, which is this thing that, you know, we really would want for one another, mm -hmm. uh, becomes the thing that hammers 
the other partner and they resent it. And I think people, and you, you've seen this a lot as a, and as an entrepreneur and even maybe teaching some of your students where it's people better be ready for that. Not everybody has the capacity uh, to say, wow, you know what? That's really great. I'm really, I am so genuinely happy. And which it sort of brings me to, you know, you have a, a book coming out on June 1st and, um, you know, talking about wanting and, uh, you know, mimetic desire in a way it's even down to there, this thing of, is it comparisons or I want this, or, you know, I should, ha- I should have what they have in my neighbor's pool or yard or door is prettier than mine or their new car. And it, it's just funny. Cause when I started thinking about, how you've arrived here, that it's on a granular level in so many facets of our life that if we could really drill down and look at this, it might be a, a bigger opportunity than just in bit, you know, in business, but us as completely individual people, you know, trying to keep as you, cause I hear, I heard you say, you know, creativity runs through us. It doesn't come from us but keep allowing that, that door to be as open as it can be. Yeah. Openness to new influences and new models in our life. So my book is kind of fundamentally all about how human desire is shaped in and through relationships and through models of desire that we have in our lives. Right. So, you know, we're not like animals. We were highly relational social, social creatures and what other people want affects what we want. And my journey and how I got here was when I look back on it, when I kind of trace my history, it was a matter of different models coming into my life at different times that wanted different things and influenced my, my journey. And it's really important to be able to identify those. You know, most people think that the idea of a role model is kind of something for children or something like that, you know, and then when they get older, you know, they've kind of become their, their authentic selves or something like that. And like, they've done away with the idea of being influenced by other people. And my book is kind of saying, wait a minute, (laughs) if you think you're that free and independent and that your desires are completely autonomous and that you're not affected by what one of your peers deeply desires or wants or where they go on vacation or, you know, the kind of people they think are cool or something like that, then you're really deceiving yourself. Can you, Oh God, it's so true. You know, it's funny. We have, uh, my husband and I had a friend who passed away a couple of years ago in his eighties. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, his name was Don Wildman. And Mr. Wildman was such an interesting person because he was, he was an entrepreneur and he created Bally's Fitness, but he was, to be able to be around him and be influenced him, you know, in my 20s, 30s, 40s, because this was a guy who at one point in his early 50s went, you know what, this is like a dog race, rat race, and um, he he retired, and they said to him, because it's, you know, sometimes our job title and what we do and all that it has so much value and somebody said well don and this is like a tough guy you know like this is like raw man's man i i lift weights i do triathlons you know i kick ass what are you uh what are you gonna do he's like i'm gonna learn to jibe 
which in sailing is like going there and back, right? Yep. And it sounds r- ridiculous, but it's, it's sort of like what it represented, which was sort of like, I'm going to do new things, maybe things I'm not good at. And um, I just remember feeling really fortunate that I could witness and have a model of somebody who valued time, relationships. If you put food in front of them, I mean, I, we, we had, you know, 20 something years of dinners. He could, he would say something like, this is one of the best steaks I've ever had in that moment. Not like, you know, 30 years ago, I went to this steakhouse and it was like, that was a really good steak. It was like this moment, this sunset, right here. We are right now. This is like one of the best. And he, and so I think it's a really important point. What you're saying is we need to really be, and I actually think more so as we get older, selective Mm -hmm. about our models. Think about as you get older, older, if all your friends are like, oh, my shoulder hurts and my back hurts and my kids never call me, then what are you going to do? You're going to be like kvetching for the whole rest of your life versus, hey, what can we do? Should we walk? Should we travel? Whatever it is. And and it creeps in and it it bounds us up in our lives in such a secret way that we, we don't even recognize. I would be curious to know for you early what some of your models were that kind of started to set you on course. You know, was it parents? Was it a teacher? Was it a coach that you thought, yeah, that's what I, I want some of that. I'm an only child. My dad was a truck driver and my mom was an art teacher and I grew up on the West side of Michigan and I just couldn't wait to get the hell out of there. I just thought it was boring. And I wanted to go to one of the big cities. It was either going to be LA or New York. There was no in between. It's like, I'm going to UCLA or NYU or something like that. Um, I ended up going to New York and, uh, and my, my parents were tremendous role models for me. Uh, my dad is one of the hardest working men I've ever known. And I really admired that. And I always saw it right from the very beginning, hard work became extremely important to me. Uh, and my mom has all kinds of other qualities that I wanted to emulate too. So both, both models for me, but the way that it manifested that hard work manifested itself for me was in the hustle culture of NYU Stern and wall street and investment banking. And I escaped that only to kind of get, get entrapped in a very similar dynamic in Silicon Valley. And I couldn't, you know, I wasn't to your point, Gabby, like I wasn't enjoying anything in the present, like food for me was fuel. And it was just like a means to an end in order to help me do another eight hours of work. So I was not living in the present at all. I just wasn't grateful for anything. You know, it was just always tomorrow or the next day or when I I started four companies in my twenties. Okay. Uh, So no sooner than I had like kind of got to the finish line with, with one thing, I was already looking to the next thing. Do you think you, when you finished with one, are you like, okay, that, like you said, that didn't bring me the thing I thought. So now I'm going again, but also look, isn't there, you know, when you, you pay your dues a little bit. So you, you know, most of us, when we get out of college, it's like, I call it uh, carrying the medical kit. It's like when I, when I traveled with my team, if you were the freshman and when you were traveling, you carried the medical kit. It sucked. It was heavy, but there is, do you not, is there a part of life? Or I guess maybe the better question is, can you blend, Hey, you're paying your dues. You're in your twenties. You're, you're at the bottom of the ladder. You're doing, you know, you're getting experience. You're showing, you're creating value. Mm-hmm. You're contributing. Is, do you think there's a way to also simultaneously bridge that 
with some of some of these other ideas that you're talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Well, the end of that story was a few models came into my life that I'd been waiting for the whole time. So I had been craving a few things that I wasn't finding amongst my peers, the other startup entrepreneurs and CEOs. I was craving just kind of a model of humanity and a lifestyle that I just didn't see exemplified in anybody in the little fishbowl that I was in. So I kind of had to start looking outside of it. I desired like some more of these, um, you know, kind of, um, you could say feminine qualities of like empathy and being able to listen, which I wasn't really able to find that I was craving. Um, I desired, um, was this a, were these conscious thoughts or was this an instinct inside? Like, could, do you, did you know then like in a real conscious way and language, like I'm looking for some humanity within all of this achievement or was this just like, Oh, I'm, I want something in a very, I would say kind of pre-conscious way that would have been extremely hard for 27 year old Luke to be able to articulate to you. It's one of those things in life where like, when you see it, you know, it like we know you see somebody and you're like, that's the person I've been waiting for my whole life, you know, and you don't know until you, until you see them, until you meet them, right? You don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you've been missing. So I had a couple of models come into my life that embodied those qualities. And it was only in meeting them and forming a relationship with them that I had the aha moment. So one of them was not an entrepreneur. He happened to be a very successful corporate attorney in Vegas. I ended up moving from Hermosa Beach to, to Las Vegas, long story, move one of my companies there. And I met this attorney who had, I mean, he's, he was a partner at a law firm, very successful, high powered. He worked with the casinos, yet he lived this very balanced life. He had five children. Um, he was, he had a lot of virtues that I really admired. He was extremely humble for a lawyer, very patient and always cheerful. Uh, and though he was probably behind the scenes, one of the busiest, probably have more work to do than I did. Uh, he never made you feel that way. And I was like, you know, whatever he has, like, I want some of some of what he has, you know, I want to start spending more time with this guy. And there were a couple other people like that. And I didn't really know that I was craving some more of that balance and humanity in my life that a few of these people that honestly, you know, I've just, I've just been very lucky. They just came into my life. I didn't go searching for them. You know, there's no like app out there to go find friends like this that I know of at least. Um, so I, I was very lucky. And I think that made me realize that I was looking for something that transcended the experience that I, that I had. And little by little that caused me to step back, kind of take, take stock of where I was at at that point in my life, become a little more introspective. Um, and then just think long-term about, you know, what I'm really looking for out of life. I have a conversation with one of my friends. We always talk about the work should be just way better than you mm -hmm. to going back to sort of creativity coming through you, not from you. Mm -hmm. And so that really, when we talk about sometimes the work or, or that transcendence is if we, if we, if we're doing it right and we don't think we're doing it, which is better um, is that the work should be so much better than us in a certain way. If, if we can, if we can get it right. Um, what, tell me, hmm. like for you, as you started out as an entrepreneur, and obviously age and experience will also create different value as you move through your second, third, fourth, I don't know who has energy, sure. all of that, by the way, um, is, I mean, did you flop? Oh, yeah. 
yeah, I mean, I, I flopped and flailed and, and, you know, in, in some senses I still do. Um, you know, I, I don't kind of believe in the riding into the sunset, you know, happily ever after kind of, you know, um, you know, life is a, life is, is a, is a struggle. And, you know, as soon as we get complacent, um, you know, that's, that's when it becomes dangerous. So, you know, I don't pretend that I've sort of got to this idyllic kind of state of, of entrepreneurship. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it comes with age and it comes with having really good people in my life. I always think of work as having three dimensions to it. The first dimension of, of work is the objective dimension. It's just like the thing that you're doing. It's what you're doing. So, uh, I wish I had a good example, uh, for like sports or for surfing with this, but the, the one that I usually give and, and tell my students is like a blacksmith because it's super easy to understand. The blacksmith is hammering away at a piece of metal and the objective dimension of his work is literally the shape that the metal is taking. That's just what the work is. Then there's a subjective dimension to the work and that's what the work is doing to him. So it's building muscle, right? Um, it's really hard work. So it might be building some, you know, some virtues, uh, some patience, right? So it's all of the, it's the way that the work shapes us and different kinds of work shape our humanity in different ways, right? So like physical labor tends to shape it in different ways than, than, you know, uh, intellectual kind of information economy work does. I don't think we think about that enough as people, by the way. And then the third dimension of work is what I would call the transcendent dimension. And it's the idea that aside from the objective dimension, what's getting done, and aside from the way that it's shaping me as a person, there's some transcendent dimension that goes way beyond me and goes way beyond the work. Like the work is never just about the work. It's about how it affects other people, other people's lives, my clients, how it serves people. And I think that we all crave that transcendent dimension. And if we don't have it, if we're not quite sure what it, what it is, even like the coolest kind of work um, will end up leaving us really wanting a lot more. So, you know, that's one of the things I talk about with my colleagues and with my students a lot is what's that, what's that impact? What's that dimension? Cause that's going to be the thing that fuels you for 10, 15, you know, 20 years, if you're so lucky to do right. the same kind of work for that long. And very few people do these days. Do you, it's interesting. Cause I, you know, I've had businesses that did badly um, chugged along and, you know, have done well. And it's interesting. Do you, do you think, and when you talk to your students, does everything first have to start with a, a genuine internal desire that it's something you so wholeheartedly believe in, you want, it's not out there. Um, you use yourself, you've enjoyed it. You want to share it. And then sometimes, you know, the third dimension almost becomes like a discovery because I think it, I don't know. And this is, I'm looking for you to, to get, I love your opinion because you're in a way more, way more experienced than I am at this is it, then it shows up and you go, Oh, wait a second. People, um, I knew I had a good idea about this or felt like it could be useful, but I'm enjoying all these other ways it's showing up that people are saying, they really like it, how it makes them feel, and that that becomes more defined by them than how you could actually define. Yeah, I think there's an analogy to a relationship here, too. Uh, things emerge and meaning emerges later, and we don't always know it right away. Right. We follow our instinct or we follow some passion. And that's a good thing. I never, never dissuade 
anybody from doing that. It, well, it takes a lot. I have a couple of times and I like, there's no way that's going to work. You might want to seriously think about that. Um, but I think that these are, there's emergent possibilities and we see connections sometimes it's two or three years after the fact. Uh, and again, I do think a relationship is a good model here. Like I met my fiance Claire at an Irish bar in Rome and you know, there was just in like Rome? in Rome. Yeah. Where was she living? She was traveling around Europe at the time. Okay. And, and I, I happened to be living in, in Rome. So I lived in Italy for a few years and I met her on Thanksgiving day, watching a Detroit lions football game at an Irish pub in Rome. And, uh, turns out her dad's from Michigan. So, you know, I was like, we're of such different people, but I'm just going to follow this instinct that I have. Like something just feels right. Sometimes like pursuing an opportunity, starting a company can be a little bit like, but like, I don't, man, I don't know where this is going to lead. This could be a real roller coaster ride. It's a little scary, but I'm going to enter into this thing. I'm going to enter into this relationship and, you know, with trust, it kind of just takes a stepping out. It's uncomfortable. And, you know, that was, that was a long, that was six years ago now, you know, and these like beautiful things have emerged, right? Like facets of her and uh, connections and sort of these possibilities that I never, ever would have imagined. So I think you're absolutely right that, you know, you don't have to have all this stuff figured out at the beginning. Part of life is, you know, these things, if you're open, if you have this sense of like wonder, um, these things kind of emerge later. And the older I get, you know, the more I have eyes to, to see them actually. Do you, do you have to be careful because you are very experienced and on top of it, you're a teacher. I mean, <laughs> to like and provide uh, commentary only when asked or like, how does that work in your home where, you know, I'm sure she's doing things that you'd be like, huh, I don't know. Or, you know, like, how does that work? Because I'm, well, you know, couples are always navigating. We, we have a joke in our house that an expert, somebody who lives a mile away. But um, I was just curious if, you know, how you've navigated that. Well, you know, you'd have to ask Claire because the answer <laughs> I give you might not be the answer that she gives you. Uh, I think that I'm pretty good at it. I, so I'm, I'm seven and a half years older than she is. So there's, that's, there's even more of a tendency for me to want to say, oh, hey, you know, I've been, and she's starting a food company and I've started a food company. So we have this weird connection, right? We know who would have known six years ago that this would ever happen. So uh, I've, I find myself um, just kind of like waiting until asked usually, um, if anything. And I mean, and I, frankly, I'm learning a ton because I mean, it's just, it's been a while. I started my, my food company back in 2005 and things are totally different now. It's a long time later. So uh, yeah. I'm learning a lot and there's kind of a, well, and also during the pandemic, there's the fact that we both, our desks are 10 feet away from each other. So that doesn't, it makes it even more dangerous, right? So I think with, with Claire and, and with my students, it's really important. I don't have kids yet, um, uh, but the parents that I've talked to and most of my friends do have sort of confirmed that this is true. You have to let them like figure things out along the way. And for my students, that's so true. And like, sometimes I see that they're going to struggle but I know that they just need to kind of like work through that thing. And they know that I'm always there to talk about it whenever, whenever they're ready. You know, I try not to, I, I try to push them like a good coach does in sports, right? Like you don't want to push somebody so hard that they just throw in the towel and get discouraged, right? Like it's one of the most important skills to understand as a coach or as a mentor 
and that's a big part of my role now as a teacher uh, and as you know somebody that mentors a lot of younger entrepreneurs like what's the right amount right like what are the right things to say that's a, that's a really hard skill and I haven't always been good at it I still don't know if I'm good at it but I'm, I'm certainly better than I was five years ago because um, I've made some mistakes right and I sometimes I'm like ah yeah I could have done a better job I could have been gentler like saying this one particular thing right um, and I, I realize that all the time and that's just something that I'm learning to get better at as I get older you've made a comment that I, I want to revisit where you talked about like physical work, which also can be creative, right? Like being a blacksmith has a creative element, even though it's highly physical. So let's not confuse, um, you know, your dad was a truck driver, but there there is still an art within the Absolutely. physicality, the long hours, you know, navigating weather, whatever it is, like it's it's a it's a skill, it's a craft, it's an art, and yes, it's it's physical. Now we have a world and you've spent some time there, Silicon Valley, and it's creative into the, in technology, right? Like, okay, we have to make it intuitive and nimble and all these things. However, I would love to understand from your point of view, because those things shaping us back to us, the subjective part, um, what is the difference in the way it's sort of developing people? I have my theories. And one of them is that as, you know, we begin to build more things in bits and bytes and the world becomes more and more dominated by technology that is shaping the way that we think in a certain sense, the way that we view the world. And I think it's contributing to kind of a calculating sort of mindset, right? Where everything is calculable. And, uh, you know, just to give you an example, I, I tell the story in the book about an old monk that I met in Italy, who's been an abbot of a, of a monastery for three decades. And he said, it's only been in the last 10 years that he's seen the novice monks come in um, and they won't sort of go into the chapel to pray or to meditate without a stack of books under their arm. And he said, I think that's because there's this notion that without any input, like there's no output, kind almost like a computer, right? Like in other words, like if they're not putting, you know, data in, then nothing's going to come out or nothing's going to happen to them. I, did, I thought that was like a really fascinating little anecdote. And I've, I've heard story after story after story of this kind of way of thinking about the world. And I, I worry a little bit that we're losing some of the, you know, we're incredibly complex embodied creatures, you know, like there's tacit knowledge, you know, like we, we know things, we sense things in our body, we're sensual, we, we like, there's so many things that we do that we can't even put into words like how we do them. And I think we might be losing a little bit of that tacit dimension of, of life, you know, that sort of sensory experience that that is sort of getting like engineered away. And I, I don't know, I mean, maybe 20 years from now, we'll have more insight, but I do sense that. And part of my journey was kind of like sensing that I was becoming a little desensitized to um, certain things in my life. And I wanted to step away and kind of immerse myself in nature um, and, and to kind of like do things with my hands a little bit more, just kind of like re that was a way of reconnecting with my own humanity. 
So I know that that's, this is not the case for everybody. Um, you know, I'm not implying that if you kind of, you know, if you're a coder or something like that, you know, like watch out, um, you know, you're becoming, you know, you're losing some aspect of your humanity. I don't think that's the case at all, but I think anything taken to the extreme and we, you know, we're doing so much of that kind of work. I do think that we have to make sure that we're balancing it out um, with those other, with, with other things. So it doesn't become dominant. Taking vitamins you know, it can be confusing. You almost feel like you need to really understand the landscape of supplementation to really do it effectively. But one thing is for sure, we all need a good multivitamin. And I have been taking the Ritual multivitamin for over two months, and I love it. I love everything about this brand. They're, it's clean, vegan-friendly multivitamin. It's formulated with high-quality nutrients that are bioavailable, imagine that. You know, it's like you're spending the time, the resources to actually do the vitamins. You want ones that your body will understand what to do with it. So they have vitamins that are highly bioavailable. Things that you will not find in the Ritual Multi is sugars, GMOs, major allergens, synthetic fillers, and artificial colorants. It's funny, you know, I, I look at natural food and vitamins and you think, oh, they're healthy. And the fact of the matter is, is that we still have to do our homework and find out who's doing it right. Here's kind of an extra little fun thing about it too, is that they have a fresh taste. It's like this minty aftertaste and a delayed release capsule. So if people maybe get a queasy stomach taking vitamins, that makes all of this very, very easy. The other great thing is, they do it. They've got a women and a men's. We all need different things. They even do teen vitamins and then over 50. So I'm, I'm saying that they're really sort of trying to figure out, hey, what do people need based on who they are and where they are in their life? And you can take this multivitamin with such confidence because all of their ingredients are highly traceable. So they've got transparently sourced ingredients. They have nine nutrients to help fill the gaps in your diet. Again, it's very, very difficult to figure out, you know, what we're not getting and what we are getting and, you know, where our vegetables are coming from and which soil and all of these things. So Ritual has done just such a beautiful job. They even, you know, listen, even the way it looks, it has like oily and dry ingredients together in the same capsule and you can look at it. So I've really enjoyed this brand. I'm excited to share it with you and they have a great offer for you. So if you would like to get key nutrients without all that junk in it, Ritual is offering the listeners today 10% off during your first three months. So this is another amazing thing. Everything is delivered to your door every month with free shipping always. You can start, even snooze, maybe go on a trip or cancel your subscription at any time. And if you don't like Ritual within your first month, they'll refund your first order. So let's go back to the offer. They will give you 10% off during your first three months. If you visit ritual.com slash Gabby, so you can start your ritual today. That's ritual, R-I-T-U-A-L dot com slash Gabby. I think it's really important because it's also that, you know, I have my youngest child is 13. Um, so I've even seen the progression, the difference between my oldest is 25 and 17. But even the difference between the 17 and 13 year old uh, where my third, and we live in a natural environment. So like, we're on the easy side of it. Right. Uh, imagine, I, I just think about it. If like you're taking the subway and you're in the city where it, you, have to, you have to work even harder for those, some of those experiences flip side though, conversely, you have more interaction with more humans. So you could go to the deli and like 
you know, you see, you see Joe and he's like, Hey, how you doing? Oh, you've got, you want your regular. There's a, there's a something about that. That's very, mm. very powerful too. But where if we don't find a way culturally to keep sort of saying, Hey, this is cool and important and a value and uh, that people are not only not going to do it there. It's like, you don't care that you miss it. But then is that that eternal yearn? We're already, and I want to, you know, I want to get into um, the mimetic desires and all of that, but we're already hardwired to be like, I want more, I'm missing something, uh, what else is there? And then on top of it, if I think we're taking away some of these things that are maybe actually more biological connected to us that we don't know, we can't always put into words, that no matter what we have, it's, we're going to have that yearning is going to be so powerful. If we don't, if we just can't slow it down enough to be, to notice, if you will. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I don't, I don't know. It's just, I, like you said, we'll know more. I joke that my kids are the ex- experiments as you know, I was an experiment in a different of a different set of studies. Mm-hmm. You know, we were of the eighties excess, whatever. We'll right. see how that works out. This right. is an experiment of another kind that will be interesting uh, to, to see what happens. And, you know, it's like, I don't want to rag on technology. It's, it's the obvious thing to do. It's, you know, it's not going anywhere. Um, the calculation of it is kind of radical, but it will be interesting to see, you know, what happens. I agree. And um, I, if I were going to start a company tomorrow, I would probably start a tech company. I mean, I'll just be honest, you know, because there's the opportunity to scale and it's hard to attract uh, serious VC money um, starting, you know, a West African grain company like Claire's. And, you know, there's there's just so much opportunity there that what we have to be careful about is and this is one of the topics of the book is like we're sort of mimetically attracted to certain industries or doing certain things just because everybody else is or because we we think that what i just said is the case but it may not be like the things that we assume are common knowledge or well obviously you know you have to start a tech company if you want to scale i think we have to question some of those assumptions because we arrive at those assumptions or those desires to do these things uh, without without being really critical of why people are, are doing them. And I can tell you, like, the reason why a lot of people go to start tech companies, I've, we're Come on, on Zoom Luke, right go now. Go on a limb. Go on. Don't yeah. worry. You can, yeah. you, listen, you have enough of your own personal observation <laughs> and you deal with students and you've been in the business. Yeah. There's, it's okay. Yeah. You know, I mean, but there, there's a, there's a mimetic aspect to all of this. And by that, I mean, Im- imitative desire, all right? Where we see models of cool entrepreneurs starting billion dollar companies, and they're all tech companies, by the way. I, I mean, I'm sure there are a few that aren't, but most of them are. Uh, Sweet Greens is not, I think they're a billion dollar company. I love them, um, but most of them are tech companies. So, you know, when we're looking, you're a kid who's 18, 19, 20 years old, like most of my students, and you look out there, and you aspire to, you know, be one of these quirky entrepreneurs that is making the news, uh, you are going to imitate them in, in, in a lot of different ways. And you're going to go that, that path. 
uh, thinking that if you, you know, you dress a certain way and you act a certain way and you live in these three cities and you start this kind of a company and you talk like this on Twitter and you're into crypto and this and that, like you put all of these things together and you've like constructed a persona. Mm-hmm. And before you know it, you know, you're just right down the track and like, who knows what opportunities we're missing because the models that are being held up for us, at least in this space, it's right. super cool to be an entrepreneur right now. It wasn't quite as cool when I graduated in 2004. Like Wall Street was still the job that most yep. of my classmates wanted to have when I graduated from college in 2004. Now, everybody wants to do a startup, it seems like. Yeah, or have a fund. Get to be, you know, be a, be a fund manager, VC fund. Sure. I, I think what you're saying is interesting because it really also roots down into the true definition of success. And so, for example, maybe what you define as success is quite different for me, which is fantastic because then it's the opportunity, to your point earlier, is to get that, the thing that you thought you wanted that reflected you and what you needed and wanted, not, well, I imitated all this stuff. I actually wasn't even, that wasn't even my best skill sets, by the way. I had these other skill sets that really were my real, some of my real superpowers or whatever the tech company, I love that. What's your superpower? It's like, oh, off, you know, my superpower. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like at a certain point, I'm like this rhetoric, like how do you know what your superpower is when you're 19 or 20? Why don't you just take a moment and go into some rooms with different people and be like, wow, that felt good. Or this was easier for me or whatever it is. Instead of we define success now as do you, you know, Everybody knows everything. That's my favorite too. Oh yeah, I know that. I saw that. I've been there. Have you seen this? You know, it's like this competition for- and Everybody has to have a take on everything too. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I'm not even informed enough to have a take on three quarters of the things that are going on in the world. I'm just there to observe it and try to learn. I don't have totally. to actually have a full opinion about it because I don't know. You know what I've I- noticed, Gabby? Like the, my students actually seem to respect me the most- when they ask me a question and I'm just like, I have, I have no idea. Like, let me get back to you about that next week. Or like, you know, Professor Burgess, what do you think about this? I'm like, I don't know enough about that to comment or what, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like, yeah, you know, like I, I have like a very limited capacity. I'm busy. I read like maybe 1% of the news and I don't have opinions on a lot of the things yeah. going on. And I also like, there's a lot of things about entrepreneurship that I'm still figuring out, you know, and I think that's a really important thing, you know, just to be able to say, I don't know. Yeah. And they have, you know, and, 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 and now let's, let's go into the wanting because I, I think, I think ego and desire is so important because it is in nature. It's a motivating factor. It's important. We need it. However, it's the way that we've lived to your point. We're not just like, okay, for, trying to keep our food going now that our basic needs are met, you know, safety and food and, you know, having love and sex procreation. That's pretty, we have that at least for now, you know, we could go into another cycle, who knows? Uh, It's on tap. It's pretty, it's overall pretty good. Now we have a, you know, there's a common enemy out there. They call it COVID. Okay. That's sort of a threat. The economy has become a threat for people. So these are little twists in, in all of this, but, it's set up now where we have a lot of time 
to explore what other people are doing. And then let's take it one step further and say, let's throw it on social media. Let's curate it. Let's filter it. Let's edit it. And now we really, now we're really all in the game about this mimetic desire, just kind of, you know, at at know, an incredible clip, if you will. Yeah. So mimetic desire is, means finding models of desire out there to imitate. And frankly, we have more than ever. And I think COVID has probably accelerated this mimesis, right? This imitation. Because most people are, most people that I know are spending more time on social media than usual because we're, you know, most of us are in our houses most of the day. And, you know, we're curious and we're scrolling and browsing and hate watching and doing all that stuff. And, you know, we're we're just hate watching. Yeah. yeah. And it just exposed to to so much more right now. So I actually think, um, I mean, there's a, there is a narrative and I I just, I know both stories. So one narrative is like people have used this time during COVID to find out what they really want and prioritize because of tragedy and loved ones getting ill and having more time to think and reflect. And I know that that's true for many people. What I also know is true for many people, because I've talked to many people and they've confided in me, is that some people are more confused than ever about what they want to do post-COVID and who they are and what's important to them. Because it's been like Pandora's box for the last 15 months, right? Like this exposure to all different kinds of models. Like now you've got van life and you've got like people doing this and, and moving to different cities and starting new jobs. And now I'm remote and everybody's kind of like uh, giving their curated life and, and, you know, what they want their life post COVID to be. And because we're social creatures, because we look to other people to help figure out what do I want to do, you know, post COVID, you know, when the world starts returning to normal, uh, we're, we're always like taking our cues from the things around us. And there seem to be more than ever. And it's like, how do you cut through the noise to kind of found out, find out what's really important to you? So did you have a moment where you thought, you know what, I've talked to my students so much about this and some of my friends that I'm going to try to get into this deeper and, and write this book. I wrote the book because I thought that this concept of mimetic desire was really important. It's like something that everybody knows, but maybe not everybody had a name for or a term for, you know, like once you, you know, know about it and read about it, you're like, oh yeah, like that's super hyper mimetic, right? Uh, It's kind of like once you have a blue car, you start seeing all the blue cars all all around you, right? So I thought it was incredibly important. Who who introduced this, this, when did this idea even get really crystallized for you in your life? This was around the time in my uh, early, late 20s, early 30s, right around 30, when I had taken a mini sabbatical from all of my startup work. I had some time. I had you know, the freedom to not have to do anything and work right away. I was able to travel. I kind of got that out of my system. I didn't do the whole backpacking around Europe thing when I was a college student. So I kind of did it later in life. And I had the freedom and the luxury to, to do that. And... <clears throat> I immersed myself in philosophy, theology, uh, reading books that I blew off when I was in high school. So I kind of had this like really cool time to myself, like of re-education. And one of my mentors at that time suggested that I look into Girard's ideas mm-hmm. uh, because so as Rene, I was... Rene Girard, you're talking about? So Rene Girard is a so French thinker who is really the inspiration behind a lot of the ideas in my book. All right. These are not my ideas, but I, I had experienced mimetic desire at this 
uh, existential level in my own life. And I just didn't have a, a word for it. I didn't really understand what it was that was driving me. So this mentor recommended I, I look into these books and they're not easy books to read. They're really academic. Uh, you know, I don't wish them on many people, uh, especially as magnum opus. It's called Things Hidden since the foundation of the world, like a super scary title, like only this French academic could name a book that. And as I went through the next six, seven years, I, I wanted people to understand this idea. When I would tell them about it, uh, they would get it. And, you know, I would explain to them how it works, but like, whoa, should I, how can I go deeper? I was struggling to find a book to recommend to them. And I got so frustrated with this. I finally realized like nobody else seemed to be interested in doing it. Um, I wanted to connect it to things that people would understand. And I thought, you know, Luke, maybe this has to be you. Like maybe, maybe you just need to write this book. It started to feel like starting a company. Like I had this almost like a child that I needed to, to, to give birth to. So I decided to do it. Um, I learned a lot along the way because you learn the most when you have to teach it, when you have to try to communicate it. So it's been an incredibly rewarding experience. So this, this idea of mimetic desire and mimetic theory that's really been influential in my own journey of self-discovery. I just wanted other people to, to know about it uh, earlier than I did and to just be able to, you know, filter their own experiences through this lens. Uh, and, you know, I, I teach this to 19 year old students and, and they get it. Um, so I, you know, I, I know that this is, it's something that's pretty easy to grasp, but it took me, a, really a decade of going deeper into it before I realized kind of like how fundamentally this explains so many different aspects of human behavior from why we are attracted to certain people in certain careers to why we get caught up into rivalries and we don't really understand why uh, to some of the conflict in the culture. So maybe I encourage people to to get the book, but I, I would love to for you to maybe chunk some of the bigger ideas because we are at a very you know, combative, loud, there's not a lot of discussion, there's not a lot of nuance. You know, I have friends, friends that we joke, like, uh, especially, you know, like, you add uh, parenting and relationships. And you, I feel like if you, if you live, and you're not trying to pretend it's all, all just dialed in, I'm just so dialed. Um, life is, a, is really great there's so much gray and nuance and, and um, what also works really well for me might be a really different spin for somebody that I'm even close to, or would appear similar to. Um, and it's just sort of encouraging people like their own voice, but I, I would love to maybe if you could pull out some of the really um, I, I actually, I'm really curious now that you said it about, um, you know, having rivalries because um, you know, Really, when you when you get to a certain place and you, if you've at all been competitive, then you also hear people saying, if it wasn't for that person, I would have never reached as high a level. So sometimes there's people out there that we're competitive with that are ultimately pushing us to a higher potential and us them. So there's that kind, but you might be talking about a different kind of rivalry. I don't know. Well, I think that that kind of a rival can turn into, uh, um, which I would call a positive rival um, and positive competition can turn into the more self-destructive kind uh, if it becomes something else, right? So there are two, and I talk about this in my book, we, we 
have models and, and human beings sort of, we, we look to other people as models of desire, as models of lifestyles. And we're hyper aware, like more than we really understand. We see it on social media, um, but no model is more, is, is more powerful than our neighbor, right? Like the people that are closest to us and the people that are more like us. So if you ask most people, like, who are you more jealous of? Like Jeff Bezos or like the, the person that you work with in a similar role that makes like an extra 10 grand than you do and has like a slightly nicer car. I mean, pretty much everybody's gonna say the second person, right? So, because you're, you have more in common with them, they're closer to you, right? Like most people can't relate to what it's like to be a billionaire. So that isn't, but that's really interesting if you think about it. So like jealousy, envy, rivalry seems to be a function of similarity and proximity, right? So I think, I think about this a lot where I'm sometimes if I catch myself having in my small brain, I call it, I'm like, what if you just were not in this narrative, in this story? What if you live somewhere else and, you know, you were like everybody around you was fishermen? Because sometimes it's like really seeing how that can pin you and hold you. And all of a sudden you're in these rules of engagement that you didn't realize you signed up for. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, as I think being aware of the systems of desire that we are in is really important. Like just being aware of like, what what do people that I that are surrounding me, what do they value? What do they desire? Just getting a grasp of that is actually a really good first step. So, and I look back on my experience, here's an example of a positive rival that became a negative rival for me. Oh. So there are, there are two kinds of models, okay? There are, and I talk about this in the book, there are models that are outside of our world where no serious competition is really possible. And then there are models that most of us don't think of as models that are inside of our world where competition and rivalry is possible. So I played high school football. And when I was a freshman, I thought that the, the junior varsity quarterback was like the coolest guy, like in a way that went way beyond football. And he was a positive model for me. I aspired to be the varsity. I was a quarterback. I aspired to be the varsity quarterback. Um, I looked up to him. Uh, I wanted to be more like him in a lot of different ways. I cared about where he went to college, right? Like I, I noticed that immediately, right? And that mattered more to me than whatever my high school guidance counselor said. Right. And any of the objective criteria, all I cared about was where he wanted to go and people like him wanted to go. Right. They wanted to go to, well, I don't want to get, cause I'm from Michigan. I don't want to get into a, I'll open up a can of worms if I say one of the schools. Okay. <laughs> but, so he was, so that he, because he was a, a, this positive model for me and he wanted to go to this place and wanted this certain kind of life, I began to desire that. Well, we had a problem once. Uh, I was a sophomore and we started competing sort of directly and I was competing to make varsity. So it was like one thing we were closed off and I was no threat to him when, you know, when I was a freshman, but all of a sudden, like now we're playing in the same space and now there's a possibility that I could essentially take over his role. Yeah. Um, and then all kinds of weird things started to happen that didn't happen when we were at a safe distance. So I talk a lot in the book about, about this idea that, you know, the, the, the way that we're in relationship with models or rivals and, and influencers matters tremendously. And we can move in and out of different kinds of relationships with them. They can change. It's not static. You know, uh, sometimes you can 
move next door to somebody or in next, you know, in somebody's neighborhood or go into their industry and the whole, the whole thing changes. So that's one thing that I think is really important to be aware of. And one thing that technology and social media has done is has brought us all like onto the head of a pin, socially speaking, existentially speaking, it's brought us all really close together. So Facebook says oh, our mission is to bring the world closer together. Well, from a Girardian perspective, which is, you know, my book is about Rene Girard's theory of mimetic desire. That, that can be kind of a, a dangerous thing if we don't understand that this is the way that we operate. I, uh, I have a tendency, um, I, you know, I, I try my best to like manage ugly feelings. You know, I just try to really pay attention to just anything, just an ugly feeling, one that isn't of elevation to another person. Because at the end of the day, it's like you have to decide that you're, you are in charge of yourself um, but I also think what you're doing is, is so important because this is tribal and that's biological. And so as we move further from things with our hands and understanding what direction the sun rises and sets and even knowing how to get somewhere without, um, you know, Google Maps telling us, but using our experience or understanding of our environment to get there, having this kind of conversation around like these types of things is also arming people with like, oh, and by the way, this is kind of natural. You don't have to stay in it, but the fact that it's starting to move in this direction, the fact that when you get elevated to sophomore and he's senior and he's now not so cool, giving you that space to look and go, I get it. Like I, I'm starting to understand because I'm infringing on his space, which is connected to his opportunity, which is connected to something in his biology. Mm -hmm. And just because for me, I feel like the more we can look at things naturally, because mm -hmm. they, they sort of make sense in, in, you know, some way. And as we've gotten further away from, I hunt for my food. Mm -hmm. um, I, I compete for mates. We're in these other weird, fuzzy things. We're like, why is that person acting like that? It's still connected to their, primal tribal bio, biological self yeah and and also gives us the opportunity i find i try really hard not to to be uh competitive but do you do you talk about also in the book if you're one of those if you're all of a sudden him and he he recognizes this freshman who is looking up to him do you discuss also the opportunity or you know, the way we've got to handle it, if for whatever reason in that role, we are the positive model because it'll happen, right? You'll start a business. Oh yeah. Someone will come into your business and do parts of this better than you. And you have to figure out the way to be okay with that and not turn into like a territorial possessive um, thwarting person. Well, here's the, the way out, one of the ways out. And it's a beautiful power that we have as human beings, because you're right, Gabby, this is like hardwired into our nature. This is a very natural instinctual response when somebody encroaches on our space um, or is kind of aggressive to us or sends a passive aggressive email. We almost have this instinctual response, right? Like eye for an eye, right? Like justice will be served. Like you, you have this coming, you deserve this. We're, it's hardwired into our DNA really to be imitative. And it's like part of why we've been able to learn language and why we have culture. This is very powerful. Our powers of imitation are freakish. 
but we also imitate conflict and we imitate violence. And that's the important point. But we have, and I'm going to throw out a, an unsexy word here that I think is really a key. Because if, if you are in a position, if you are a mentor and somebody's coming into your space, we have the power to override as human beings that instinctual response. So one word would be submissiveness. A word I like even better is renunciation, right? Like we can renounce that initial impulse we have to lash out or to, you know, be aggressive or to send a signal about our dominance or something like that. And, uh, you know, I was just in a situation just a few months ago where I was the subject of, of a very aggressive communication, <laughs> very aggressive communication. And my first instinct, which just came very natural to me, was like, oh, like he's got it coming. Like I'm going to respond point by point to this thing and just destroy these arguments. And that le- what, that, what does that lead to? Escalation. Because sure enough, if I would have done that, he wouldn't have been like, oh, well, Luke's so rational and so smart and everything that he says makes so much sense. And I was wrong. That's really not the way that most people right. operate. So what I did is I, I, I just I slept on it and I, I had to just renounce this like real, you know, who knows, maybe it came from pride or something that I that I had to defend myself and to establish, you know, my my place in this hierarchy. And um I mean, I'm not trying to boast, but I, I mean, I, I, I renounced that urge and I sent an email actually like not defending things that I could have defended. And, and it, it diffused the situation immediately. And me and that person now are, you know, are as good as we've ever been, you know, but it, like that was just an opportunity that I had. I was like, okay, I see a fork in the road right now. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I'm going to try it. If this had been 10 years ago, he would have got the email. Yeah, but you know, in my in my older years, I've sort of learned that that's probably not the most productive thing that I could do. Okay, let me ask you a question though, based on that, because I've had that same situation, right? And um, I've joked with my husband a lot that when I get, you know, I'm I, I'm very tall. I'm you know, I'm a bigger person, taller woman, whatever that means in the BS of things. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll feel my primalness of like it's almost a masculine response. It, it's like, it could be in a teaching moment or in a thing where I'm like, Oh, cool. Let's just, uh, let's jump in the pool right now. And let's just see who goes the longest. Like this we were like most right. idiotic thing. Right. Yeah. And then I, but I have fun with it because I, I feel it all inside and I go through it and then I laugh at myself and be like, okay, now what are you really going to do? Um, but that it's, when someone sends me those communications, now what I try to do weirdly and, and is I also go, oh, this is also a gift to me because they are revealing something about themselves and their own natural limitations. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to pay attention to that. I'm not going to react to it like you slept on it and you just diffuse it. But it also people have to realize those are gifts to us mm-hmm. of people showing where they are at. And they might transcend those limitations at some point. But if you're talking about business, these are, this is part of, of a reveal. Yeah. And if we're talking about business, you'd rather know that sooner than later. <laughs> exactly. So I'm only bringing that up because sometimes what pisses us off, it's like, no, 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 don't get, don't, don't do it. Be like, awesome. We got into a little foxhole and you flipped out. Cool. I, I'm glad I, I know. And, and there is something so liberating 
when you don't have to dominate, mm. there is something where all of a sudden you've pulled out of all of that because you realize there's always somebody, you know, heavier, dominant. So let's just pull out of that. Let's just, yeah. let's say, hey, who am I? What am I bringing to the table? What can I contribute? And um, my, Laird said to me something one time, he was in, um, someone was aggressing him and this wasn't that long ago. And it was, it was a younger guy than him and also somebody he had been pretty nice to, but really, if you wanted to probably get down to it, Laird might've been the heavier character. And he said to me two things. He said, first of all, even I have to follow the rules. And second of all, if I don't put wood on that fire, if I don't send that email back, that fire doesn't burn. Mm. And I think sometimes too, in the, in the thing of I'm the boss or masculinity or, you know, this is my company or whatever these things are, it's, it's realizing that that's not the way to be in charge. That's not about being in charge. No, and there's something, I think you said it, Gabby, tremendously freeing about not having to go through the rest of your life establishing dominance in every situation. That's exhausting shit. If that's like the way that you're going through your days, like it's incredibly freeing to, especially when you do have power, whether it's executive power or physical power, the most powerful thing is to not use it. Right. And it's like the most human thing to not use it. Like, uh, you know, a thousand pound gorilla, like can't help himself, but like we have the ability to like override that and to reach out in love and and humility. Uh, I mean, this goes back to the, to the right, the biblical sayings, right? Like to turn the other cheek, somebody asks you to go one mile, you go two. somebody asks you for your, you know, the, your, the coat off your back, you give them your shirt too. So that is a, it's so radical because it, it, it involves that extra sort of step of saying, well, I, I actually do. I mean, this is not about being a pacifist or anything like that. I mean, but it, it, it does, it does involve what I would actually call like a higher human faculty to like go above and beyond that. And that's true power. Yeah. It's when true you, power to, to see how somebody treats somebody that has nothing to offer them or nothing to give them. That's the real mark. You, if you practice this in your life, if anyone's listening to you, I promise you it, but it's not about denying your feelings. No. Internally, I have fun with whatever real feeling I have. And then I ask myself, okay. And, and, and conversely, it's reminding people we aren't our feelings, right? Like I feel sad. I feel depressed. Okay. But you're not your feelings. Um, I'm angry. I want to be vindictive. I'm my ego's freaking out. Okay. But you're still not your feelings. You have an opportunity to make a choice. Um, especially in these kinds of scenarios, obviously if someone's really sad, that's a different story, but that if you practice it, that muscle does get bigger and it Mm -hmm. just gets easier. And, and you know, it's like a, if you're a male uh, model, I'm sure a coach could say this a hundred times. They, they got freshman college athletes. Let's say a football coach. These guys come in, they're 18, 19, they're raging full of testosterone. They know it all. They're going to be the fastest, the biggest, the best. And the coach is like, yep, here we go again. You know, it's just, (laughs) it's like that allowance to to just, you know, have that flow. And, and um, I think it works very well in your business. It certainly works in your 
personal. Yesterday, Laird was gunning for me. He had like, I must have done something to irritate him. Right. And he was yeah. gunning for me and I could see it. And uh, I was like, why are you being combative? And he just looked at me like, no, that's not what I'm looking for. You know, I'm looking, I used to say that too. Sometimes I, he'd be doing something and I'd be like, can you just take that bullseye off my back? Like, I just, I really right. not like I can't deal with that, but there's, there is something so freeing, but I want to encourage people that if you practice it, it's amazing. And it's amazing how quick we can become unaggravated. And you make a really important point, Gabby, about emotions. Uh, I don't really consider myself that much of a stoic um, because I, I, I tend to think like that can involve a sense of like, ah, like, oh, that doesn't bother me at all. Like I get emotional and I, I, it's like really important for me to recognize how pissed off or how sad or, or whatever. And like, if I shove that down and, and just like, you know, the person on the other end of my email um, may not see all the emotions, but you know, I have ways to, to deal with the emotions so that I'm not taking out all of my anger on, on the person, right. And saying things that I don't mean. So like this way of being, uh, like when you kind of renounce that initial reaction or whatever it is, and, and, you know, you send, uh, the nice email or you respond in a way, even though you were really upset or really hurt or really angry, it doesn't mean that you're, you're sweeping those emotions under the rug. It just means that you're, you're, you're processing them, you're dealing with them and they're not, it's not coming out like, everything in this, like <laughs> a directed as aggression towards the person, right. It's finding right. healthier ways to deal with them. Yeah. And I think it's also essential to remind people to do that. If it's not internally, if you do have that safe place, because then it's like a capsule that goes away and you don't have to create a big drama for yourself. And the other thing is, and I, I wondered if you, you talked about this at all is, is not repeating things again and again. So for example, I can have, if somebody does something that I have perceived as like obnoxious to me in some way, I might share it with the safe person to offload it, but I may never really keep bringing it up. And I actually learned this from my husband where he, cause you'll, you'll, you'll meet people and you're like, Oh, it's a Wednesday. Let's say, and how are you? Oh my God. Last Saturday, you never believe what happened. And you could see him the following Saturday and they'd be like, Hey Bob, how you doing? Good, but you know, last Saturday, it's like, no, let it go. Like, don't keep repeating it. Just, you know, let it be. And, and um, I'm just curious in all of your work and working on this book, do you think it is possible for the most part for us to be liberated from, or just is it the ability to, to manage this, um, this mimetic desire? Do you, do you think it's feasible that we can really try to keep tapping in while we're striving? Mm -hmm. Striving is connected to being competitive, to wanting, yeah. to mm -hmm. obtaining. I guess that's what I'm saying is where is the balance? Where does it play in there? Because you're still in pursuit. You know, Very how, much do, you, a striver. Yeah, how do you balance that? Yeah. Well, the whole book is essentially about one cycle that is a repetitive cycle of destructive desire. Um, it's kind of a cycle similar to somebody that's suffering from an addiction and they, they just kind of like repeating the same cycle over and over and over again. 
Um, and our mimetic desire when it's destructive and, and when it's a zero sum game, that's the way that I would describe this first cycle. It's called cycle one. And it's kind of the zero sum game cycle where if I win, somebody else has to lose. I absolutely think it's possible to transcend that cycle one, that destructive cycle. So I don't think it's possible to transcend mimetic desire because it's just part of human nature. It's part of how we are. We're social creatures, but there are positive things that are mimetic too. love is you know driven through mimesis too like when somebody loves us you know we typically like respond differently to that person than we would if somebody uh, came at us with skepticism or something like that it's kind of that old saying like you know first people need to know that you love them before you before they'll really listen to you and i see that with my students so that's an example of, of positive mimetic desire and that's contagious you know, you, you see groups where like openness and empathy and listening can become like contagious and lead to positive cycles where um, it's not a zero sum game where you can actually grow together. Um, the pie gets bigger. The relationships get stronger because um, love and, and, and these things and virtues, these are these are not scarce resources. These are things that we can share. Um, and it's not a bad thing to be rivals for affection and kindness. You know, right? If, if you're married, right? Like uh, Claire and I have little things that we compete for. We like to cook for each other. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and we like to compete over like who can make the other person happier by surprising them with like some unexpected meal. So, you know, I think just finding ways to get out of the the destructive cycles that you know we, we if we're honest with ourselves we can usually see that we're we're in kind of a rinse and repeat with some things in our life um and and kind of escape that trap and move into a place where mimetic desire can become a force for good instead well i really appreciate you writing this book have you talked to ryan holiday yet we have yeah we I okay. actually talked to I'm ryan like, a few weeks ago would be like a barn on on fire the two of you we had a great shot yeah um so your book is out June 1st and mm -hmm. did you do an audio and you read it? I did an audio. I read the preface and the first chapter and then what, I had you got a out professional of it? do the rest of the book. I, I got to tell you, Gabby, that even the preface in chapter one, that was hard work. I was like, I'm really glad I don't have to read this whole book. Uh, you have a good voice though. You should have done it. Next uh, thank one. Thank you. Yep. And is there any, so I want to close on, uh, well, two things you, you talked about in, in one conversation you had about um, making eye contact with people. And I said a long, many years ago to Tim Ferriss about going first, that I always would go first, say hello first. You know, just the, my favorite is like you address someone, you go to a checkout and you go, hey, how are you? And they go, what? Mm -hmm. Happens a lot. Yeah. What? Because nobody asks them. Yeah. Hey, how are you doing? And I, and I, I really appreciated that you, you, you sort of said, Hey, do an experiment. I know it's weirder with masks on and everything, but when you're walking around, you know, just go ahead, be brave and look at people in the eye, you know, and see what happens. You, you might be surprised because people do need a model for that. And they're, they're looking for other people and, you know, make the first move. And uh, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Right. I mean, people are looking for humanity more now than ever, I think. Uh, and I live in a, awesome neighborhood in Washington, DC. And, um, you know, it's opening back up and it's beautiful weather. Now it's spring here in Washington. And, um, just to be able to see those little, those little flashes of humanity, 
or we can just say something or somebody that doesn't feel appreciated. I mean, some of these uh, grocery store workers, I, I, I live right across the street from a grocery store and, you know, I've seen the same people um, like bagging groceries. I mean, at the height of the pandemic, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, just those little, the little things. So the book is a sweeping, you know, talks about the cycles in our culture and cycles of violence and how to escape this, but it all kind of starts at the micro, at the micro level in our day-to-day lives. And my, my real hope is that, you know, people that read it or people that listen to this conversation, like before the end of the day, there's some little thing that you can do to spark some little positive ripple in the world or in your own family. I think it's, I think it's, it's so important. You know, I, I asked the people at the grocery store, I'm like, how are you holding up? That's just what I say. I go, Hey, how's it going? How are you holding up? So you, it's acknowledging like this is, these people are for real. Yeah. You know, yeah. if, if, uh, when you started this process and you've taught your classes and you, you created this book, what was your, you sort of thought in your mind, if people could get this one thing from this book, um, or the thing you got, what was it? Mm. Live as if you have a responsibility for what other people want. Not all the responsibility, but some of the responsibility. And, you know, a parent understands at some level that they have a really important role in shaping the desires of their children uh, in some ways and, and influencing how free they feel to experiment and try different sports and do different things. Because, uh, a parent is the first role model of, of any child, right? Um, and then they get other ones when they <laughs> get a little bit older. But we don't realize how much we affect the desires of, of the people around us too. Our colleagues, my students, my friends. Uh, and I like to, you know, and, and even in the process of writing this book uh, and just going out, you know, when I go out for dinner tonight, it's just, the, just this idea that, you know, when I interact with somebody, when you interact with somebody, you leave them wanting um, a little bit differently than before they met you, right? Desiring something. So in the case of the grocery store example, because you had this interaction and you're Gabby Reese, and that probably means a lot to people, right? To do that, you know, you acknowledge their hard work. Um, That will, that affects them and probably has a ripple effect that you don't see after you leave the store. So, you know, thinking of ourselves as having this responsibility to each other because desire is social. And, you know, my, my spouse, my friends, um, they affect my desires and I affect theirs in ways that we probably won't even understand five years, five years from now. Um, you know, when we look back on it and we tell stories about, you know, why we did certain things that we did. So life is mysterious, but I, I have seen in my personal experience, like how interwoven we all are. And in a very hyper individual, individualistic kind of world that we live in. We often sort of don't think of this awesome and beautiful and kind of somewhat sacred responsibility that we have to kind of affect what other people want. Luke, I really appreciate your time. And I think you should have read your book. Um, and and I, will, I do want to end on saying too, based on what you just said, that we, we live at a time too that we get blasted with all this narrative. And what you're saying is you have the opportunity to travel through your life in the narrative that you're going to create. And I think it's so important to remind people of that play by those rules, not by the ones that you're just getting banged on the head with all day long, because it is, there's so much beauty and out there, but you have to participate and, and do that. And I just want to say thank you and, um, and uh, encourage people to 
to find your book. Uh, Luke Burgess, thank you. Thanks so much, Gabby. It's been awesome. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. Monday.